Well, we're continuing this morning with our series, Revelation and the Prophetic Movement and End Time. And I tell you, I can get excited about this topic. So I hope you had a good breakfast. I'm going to try and go quick, but sometimes I get in trouble for going quick. So I don't know. It's a lose-lose, but we're going to do our best here this morning um, in talking about prophecy. A lot of people are asking a lot of questions today. There's a lot of uncertainty. What should we expect? What might be right around the corner? And she was singing about the stars. Sometimes people look up at the stars and they try and think, what are the stars trying to tell me about what I should do? Now, that's not so much biblical, but that's what some people do. There's an explosion of interest in psychic phenomenon today. You don't have to drive too far from where we are this morning to see palm reading and all kinds of uh, things that are trying to help people with this burning question, what does the future hold? Um, Books on the occult are selling in multi-millions, and I probably don't have to tell you that either. A gift of prophecy, there's a book by Jean Dixon, I believe she's since passed away, I'm not sure, three million copies sold. And this is a pretty old book, but just in the last, oh, seven years or so, it's sold another two million copies. It used to be just one million. But this idea that the gift of prophecy and all that kind of thing is intriguing to folks, and they want to know the future, and so they go to places like that. Edgar Cayce, he's another one, and this is somewhat old too, but uh, people are asking those questions about the future. 2,000 U.S. newspapers have astrology columns. This idea, I I go grab the paper and I look and I see what is in the planets and the stars. How are they lining up for me today? Well, it's not going to be your best day. Okay, well, then I'm not going to do such and such. That's what people are doing. I mean, they wouldn't be in the newspaper if people weren't reading them. Is it true? If if everybody ignored them, I mean, that's prime space. But uh, they keep reading them, so uh, we keep reading them, so they keep printing them. Psychics, lucky numbers. Uh, hotlines. People are spending absurd amounts of money. It's really ridiculous when you stop and think what people spend. Uh, Yet in God's word, we find right here in Amos 3, verse 7, surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. That's a promise that we have that God uses this method of prophecy throughout Scripture to tell people of what's impending so that they have some idea of what to expect. And he's not just telling the future of random things, secular things, things happening in Hollywood. That doesn't really make the list for God. He's talking about spiritual things and how his people can be spiritually prepared for what's coming. Jesus warns us against the counterfeit as well. We read in Matthew 24, 24, for false Christ and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive. So beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So we know that God has given his church the gift of prophecy, but we also know there's going to be false prophets. And so now, well, I'm just confused. How do I know which is which? And that's what we're going to look at today. But we want to certainly beware of false prophets. There's all kinds of things on the internet. And these are just a few that, you know, you peruse. Um, I don't recommend that you go to these types of things. But you type something in, you can find all kinds of things. Uh, Different seminars you can go to and all the rest. Uh, This one I thought was 
was interesting. Join respected and gifted professional psychic medium D. Randell for an evening on platform psychic mediumship you'll not forget. D has read for celebrities and appeared on television and radio. Take your seat and this opportunity to hear from your loved ones who have crossed over above and beyond. We've looked at that, haven't we? The state of the dead. We've talked about the dangers and how the devil can use that. But if people are not aware of that, if they don't have that safeguard, that hedge of protection called God's truth in his word, they could fall for this kind of thing. And it's all about the sensational. False prophet. They don't carry a card like this. Uh, www.imadeceiver.com. It'd be easier to spot them if they did. But that's not what their card looks like. And so you have crystal balls and all kinds of things trying to communicate with the netherworld or the other side and all those types of things. But what does the Bible have to say? What assurance do we have in God's word? Do we have hope for the future? And what can we expect? Ephesians 4 verse 8 says, Therefore he says, when he ascended on high, he led cap." Uh, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And what are some of those gifts that he left to us, to his church? What are the gifts of the Spirit? And he himself gave some to be apostles. That's uh, an administrative duty today, we would call it. Some prophets, there it is. Some evangelists and some pastors and some teachers. So here we have the list of the gifts of the Spirit. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. That's what he's giving to his church as he's leaving. Now he could say, I already came. All the prophecies that predicted my coming are done. And so we're just going to have apostles, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. But no, he includes prophets for his time of church at the end. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Notice, prophets aren't there to quench our curiosity, if we can say it that way. They're not there to predict random things, but they're there to do works of ministry for the edifying or building up the body or church of Jesus Christ. That's the reason God gives the gift of prophecy. And so any prophet that is trying to do anything other than these things here we can already say or, or start to assume, yeah, this doesn't sound like a true prophet. Does that make sense? Jesus gave these gifts to the church to strengthen it, to accomplish its mission of proclaiming the gospel to the world. So how long would these gifts remain in the church, you may be thinking? Well, Ephesians 4, 13 and 14 says, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. And there's plenty of winds of doctrine out there. And so we have this idea, until we're perfected in Christ, until everyone comes under one unity in Christ, and I believe that's not fully going to happen until he comes. Until that happens, we still have these gifts in the church, and that would be today. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 7, So that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is not going to have us lacking in any of the gifts. He wants us to have all the gifts. I mean, after all, the gifts were his idea, the gifts he has given to the church to use to build up, to edify the body. I mean, that's what we like. When we give a gift, 
And maybe I'm speaking from a guy's perspective. We like practical gifts, right? Something they can use, but we feel good when they say, oh, I like this new thing you got me. I love it so much. It's so handy. It's so helpful. As opposed to taking a gift and saying, oh, thank you very much. And you open a drawer and you stuff it in there and you close it. Right? God wants us to use all of the gifts because he's given them to his church. He doesn't want us to fall short. So we have some characteristics of God's end time church that we've been looking at anticipating the second coming of Christ. We've talked about that over the last few weeks. It's Bible-based, it's grace-filled, and it's Christ-centered. Wouldn't you agree with me on all those? Also, it's law-abiding and Sabbath-keeping. It's not my law, it's God's law. It's what He does to, to help protect me, and it's what I do to help honor Him. It's a beautiful thing, and the Sabbath is right there in the heart of the law. We meet God in the Sabbath that we can't do in any of the other commandments. It's that abiding, it's that spending time uh, in the Sabbath. So that's another characteristic that we've looked at. It's guided by, that's what we're looking at today, the gift of prophecy. And you might say, oh, I don't know about this. We're going to keep going. Jesus promised the gift of prophecy would be revived in the last days. And then we're going to look at that. So there's two dangers. I can accept the counterfeit, which we've been talking about for the last three weeks. But the other danger is I could reject the genuine. Sometimes we have a phrase for that, right? Throwing out the baby with the bathwater. I don't want to throw out one of my babies, do you? If Jesus has given us a precious gift and it's a genuine gift, I don't want to throw that out because that would probably be an equal tragedy. Don't you agree? especially if it's the gift of prophecy, helping us to see more clearly the events that will take place that have to do with us spiritually and in time. So how can we tell the difference between the true and the false? Um, we've talked about this as well, counterfeit money and all that kind of thing. There was a, a time in, in, in our history here not that long ago, maybe even that's still ongoing, probably, I would assume, but counterfeiters were getting to be very big. And so they started having these conventions in, in Washington, D.C., or these meetings where all these bankers would come together and they would spend, I think, three weeks. And do you know how many counterfeits they'd look at? They wouldn't look at one counterfeit. They would only examine the genuine. For three weeks? That's a long time. But they would look at all the little details that you and I miss. And so after three weeks, boy, you better believe if you try and put off a little counterfeit bill, they would spot it like that. If you know a genuine well, you can spot a counterfeit. Don't believe me? Ask your kids when you go on vacation and the puppy dies and somebody tries to replace it. Or the goldfish dies or the parakeet dies or whatever dies. That's not the one. Well, it looks good enough to you. Well, maybe you didn't have the same relationship with Fluffy as they did. They knew he had a little scrape in his ear where I took the scissor. I don't know. <clears throat> what does it say in God's word? Isaiah 59, 2. But your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. We don't want that to be the case. We don't want our sins to separate us from God. Numbers 12, verse 6, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Those are the two primary ways God communicates uh, in prophecy. And so we are going to list those off here. Prophets receive messages in two basic ways. An angel brought them a vision, 
or a dream. And so here we have examples of various people down through the ages that had visions or dreams that God gave to them. Yes, sir. So number two, the Holy Spirit impressed the prophet's mind. Oftentimes, as he was trying to establish a prophet, there would be a lot of dreams, there'd be a lot of visions, and then those would start to wane after they were established as a prophet of God, and they would just simply be impressed by the Holy Spirit. Okay? But we still, that's not to say that a prophet could then say whatever it wanted to. Not at all. And we're going to get to that in a minute. Um, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, how much? All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Key point to keep in mind, all of it. There was a project, I think it was back in 2007, called the Jesus Project, trying to set out and see historically how much of the Gospels can we verify. And they were kept throwing out this piece, we can't verify this piece, this piece, this piece, this piece. They finally got down to where there was almost nothing left in the Gospels. Friends, when you start to take and take pieces, well, I don't agree with this passage, so I'm just going to rip it out. I don't like this passage either. But when you start picking pieces of Scripture, you're on shaky ground. Because in anything that, that God wants to say to me that I don't like, I can just rip it out of my Bible. No, 2 Timothy reminds us that all of Scripture is given by inspiration of God. 2 Peter 1.21, it says, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So we have verses to back this up. And visions and dreams are being moved by the Holy Spirit, but all of Scripture is inspired by God. Uh, Let's see. Not all of God's prophets are Bible writers. That's another thing to keep in mind. You might think, well, if they're a prophet, then they have something here in the canon. It's not true. We have several prophets that don't appear in this Bible or in the Bible canon, as we would call it. Acts 11, 27. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus. Should we turn to the book of Agabus? Good luck. My Bible doesn't have the book of Agabus, but it calls him a prophet, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. So here we have an example of a prophet, doesn't write anything that makes into the canon, but he has a message at that time that's important for the people of that time. But here we have messages that are timeless and are for all time. But we do have the gift of prophecy. What's the difference between the Bible writers and these other true prophets? Well, I think oftentimes these prophets had a specific message for a specific time. And so those people listened to that message, they followed that message, but it wasn't something that necessarily had to be written down for everyone for for all the ages. Uh, We also have examples of uh, various ones. John the Baptist, Jesus said off of his own lips, he said, there's no greater prophet among men than John the Baptist. Well, we have John in the Bible. What's a different John? We have John the disciple. We have John the revelator. But we don't have John the Baptist writing a book. But Jesus said he's the greatest of all the prophets. So we have to conclude just because you don't have something in Scripture recorded forever, it doesn't mean you're not a prophet. Moses is another one, by the way, that's mentioned uh, as one of the greats as a prophet. But he doesn't have... uh, 
or doesn't make any predictions, I should say. He wrote some books, but he doesn't make any predictions. I'm getting ahead of myself here. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of a woman, there has not been risen, uh, one greater than John the Baptist. There it is in Matthew 11, 11. Here we are. Do you have to make a prediction to be a prophet? Well, the answer would be no. Moses and John the Baptist, two of the greatest prophets, never made a prediction. They didn't do it. They're prophets of God, but they're not predicting anything. They're simply expressing clearly uh, God's will and his direction, that kind of thing, but they don't have some long prophecy to be searched out. How about women prophets in the Bible? In the Old Testament, we have Deborah, we have Huldah. In the New Testament, we have the seven daughters of Philip. And so we have women prophets in Scripture as well. So let's look at some biblical tests of a true prophet. Because what if I'm going to stand up here and say, I'm a prophet of God, and he told me to tell you such and such. Are you supposed to just take me at my word and say, okay, aye, aye, he's a prophet of God? I would hope not. So let's look at what the Bible gives us as tests. One, prophetic accuracy. That is one of the tests, okay? Jeremiah 28, verse 9, As for the prophet who prophesies of peace, when the word of the prophet comes to pass, meaning it's fulfilled, just like the prophet said it would happen, we continue on, the prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. We've been using the phrase this week, the proof's in the pudding. If you say that such and such will happen, and sure enough, right on time, it happens exactly as it was said, that's proof. But notice, this is one of the signs. There's others as well. And we have to keep in mind, sometimes God speaks through prophets, and the prophecy is conditional. This is an example of Jonah. God gave Jonah a message. Jonah was a prophet, and he said, if you don't repent from your sins, it's one of those if-then, if you don't do this, then you will be destroyed. They did repent, therefore they were not destroyed. So if it's a conditional prophecy, we have to keep that in mind. But otherwise, God doesn't guess at the future. He knows the future. If it's a true prophet, they're going to get it right not 40 or 50% of the time, 100% of the time. We continue on. Gene Dixon here sees peace in 2000, defines mystic talent as God-given. You know, she was only right if you take the things that she talked about 30 to 60% of the time. That's all. God's right 100% of the time. How is she right 60% of the time, if, that, if we're going to be generous? Well, we talk about the netherworld, we talk about the dark side. Really, we're talking about the devil and his evil angels, aren't we? Can I just put it out there? Does the devil have all kinds of means at his disposal? Does he have access to every meeting behind every closed door? Would it be possible that the devil could predict things just based on the information available to him, and then he could make it known to his false prophets, and they could predict things with reasonable accuracy. Is it possible? I think it is. Um, this individual here in, the, in these times, it's a Christian article, he went through, or magazine, he went through and figured out the average leading psychic, their accuracy is only 16%. That's pretty, pretty weak. But I imagine they cash, cash your check 100% of the time. Yeah. So God's true prophets are accurate because God does not confuse the message. He doesn't guess. So let's, that's one proof, prophetic accuracy. But then there's biblical faithfulness. Let's look at this passage here. The Bible prophets focus on the battle between good and evil. It's not uh, talking about outside of things, but how God's church, okay? So <clears throat> here we have Deuteronomy 13, 1 to 4. 
If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass, it's fulfilled. It happened just as they said, but we're not done. Of which he spoke to you saying, let us go after other gods. Oh, then now we have a problem, don't we? Which you have not known and let us serve them. So here we have, well, let me finish, and you shall not listen to the words of the prophet or of the dreamer of dreams. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. Do you see all the times it's referencing God right there? So here's the situation. I have a dream. This is going to happen tomorrow. Sure enough, it does happen tomorrow. And now since you're all so wowed by what I predicted, I say now I'm a prophet and now we have to follow other gods. Is that biblical? No, not at all. And so here it's saying, if that's the case, you get far away from that person. You shall walk after the Lord, your God, and fear him, capital H, and keep his commandments and obey his voice. Could it be any more plain? And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. So predictions coming true is not the only. They also had to be faithful to God's word. That's the other one. If the so-called prophet is not leading a person to the word of God to be faithful to scripture, they are blatantly false. Thirdly, they exalt Jesus. They have to exalt Jesus Christ. Why would Jesus send a prophet that didn't exalt Jesus Christ, right? 1 John 4, 1 to 2. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits where they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. So there we have another key. Key number three. They confess Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus is so pivotal to this whole thing called Christianity. Christianity, right? He is so pivotal that if they're denying Christ, if they're denying Jesus, that's another big red flag, right? So that's another test of a prophet. Revelation 19.10, for the testimony of Jesus, there it is, is the spirit of prophecy. The whole point of prophecy, the whole thing behind it is to testify about Jesus. Not sports scores, not if you should buy this house or not, it's to testify and build up and edify the church, the body of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Uh, Edgar Cayce, he had this to say about God. He is a cosmic master, but he's not the divine son of God. Is that a red flag? According to the tests of prophecy that we've established, I would have to say that's a red flag. I don't want to deny the Jesus that died for me. Because as soon as I deny him, I'm denying any chance of eternal life. And that's never going to be worth it for me. So, prophetic accuracy, biblical faithfulness, exalts Jesus, and fourthly, commandment keeping. Where do we find that? Isaiah 8, 20. Madeline read that to us this morning. To the law and to the testimony, right here, if they speak not according to this word, it's because there's how much light in them? No light. That means you and I have to know God's word. Backwards, forwards, inside, outside, because if I don't know God's word, they could say something contrary and I would have no clue. Right? But 
if I'm focusing on God's word each and every day, if I'm focusing on the genuine each and every day, if I'm memorizing the genuine day after day after day, and all of a sudden a counterfeit comes up, I'll say, wait a minute, that doesn't fit. Therefore, there's how much light in them? No light. That's good. Y'all are good students. Number five, physical tests. <clears throat> physical criteria of prophets. Prophets exerted visions with their eyes open. Their eyes remain open throughout the vision. We have that in, in Numbers, example of that, 24, verse 4. Um, and in vision, prophets have no physical strength. Uh, at least we see that there in Daniel 10, verse 8. Um, and prophets in vision do not breathe because the vision is breathed by who? God breathed. Isn't that interesting? So God breathes into the person, and we have that in Daniel 10, verse 17. So there's some of these physical phenomenons. And then lastly, we have spiritual fruitage. <clears throat> I'm not so sure about that word fruitage. I just like spiritual fruit. You will know by how they live. If a prophet is trying to do all these things, but their life is upside down, you see their car parked places they shouldn't be, and you see them doing things they shouldn't do, and they're saying things, and words are coming out of their mouth they shouldn't say, maybe, just maybe, well, the proof's in the pudding. You're going to think I'm a big pudding fan by the time this is all over. Matthew 7, verse 20, Therefore by their fruits you will know them. And that is not just about prophecy. That's about all kinds of things, right? If you call yourself a Christian, but there's no fruitage in your life, that's a problem. If your spouse says that they love you, but there's no fruit, that's a problem. By their fruits, you will know them. Really, it's our fruits that show. I mean, take it for the tree. If the fruit is good, is the tree healthy? Yes. If the fruit's not good or there's no fruit, is the tree healthy? No. And so it's really an indicator of what's in our heart. Do you know what does not appear on the list? This is not on the list of a test of a prophet. One is when the prophet disagrees with me, not on the list. Cuts across my personal life. Steps on my toes, ouch, not on the list. When the prophet does not fit my paradigm of what it should be, not on the list. When the prophet disagrees with the latest peer pressure from the scientific community. You know, there was a time the scientific community, the elites, said all kinds of things. They said that the world was, well, flat. Right? And if you believed anything different, you were kind of... Even today, we have all kinds of things that come out of the scientific community. Many of which I can support with scripture and feel very good about. Others of which I cannot. So that's not on the list. If I have to choose between the scientific community and God's word, I think God knows a little bit more as the creator of the heavens and the earth. So that's where, who I'm going to go with. We better keep rolling. The gift of prophecy does not take the place of the Bible. It exalts the Bible. That's huge. It's the lesser light pointing to the greater light. And so the prophet is trying to direct people back to Christ, back to his word, back to faithfulness, back to obedience, back to the Ten Commandments. And oftentimes we see a prophet coming when the people are drifting away and they need someone to say, wake up, come back to be faithful to Jesus Christ. We've looked a little bit this week about the woman, the pure church, 
in Revelation chapter 12. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, the pure woman of Revelation 12. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, the church, who keep the commandments of God and have, what do they have? The testimony of Jesus. So here we have an example of the true church. The dragon is enraged with the woman and goes to make war with the remnant, if you will, of her seed that have two characteristics. They keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Now, if we use the Bible to interpret itself, that's just saying what I already said. If we use the Bible to interpret itself, Revelation 19.10 says, For the testimony of Jesus is. What does the word is mean if you're doing a a math word problem? Equals. For the testimony of Jesus equals or is the spirit of prophecy. So here we have this pure woman, not a corrupt woman. And she has these two, the keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. So we could say God's end time church has two characteristics, commandments of God and the gift of prophecy. Couldn't we say that? So if you're looking for a church that's, that God sees and talks about here in Revelation, his last book, at end times, it will have those two characteristics. It will keep the commandments of God and it will have the spirit of prophecy. Some people say, you know, this idea of spirit prophecy, that's too weird for me. I'm just going to believe in the Bible and the Bible only. That's great. And the Bible and the Bible only says his end time church will have the gift of prophecy. Do you hear it? So if I'm going to say I'm going to follow the word and the word only, then I also have to believe that there's going to be the gift of prophecy in the church. And if it's not in our church, then it messes up the whole thing that we're not at the end of time like we thought we might be. We have to wait for another church to raise up that will have the gift of prophecy and that the whole thing just kind of crumbles down. Or does this church have the gift of prophecy? Don't be nervous. 1 Corinthians 12, 28, and God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, uh, Has God blessed the Seventh-day Adventist church with the gift of prophecy? That's the question we're asking. If God has not restored the gift of prophecy in his last day church, then he would not be faithful to his own word. And everybody says, well, I'm going to believe in the word. Well, then we have to believe all the word, not just part of the word. God promised to restore then the gift of prophecy in his end-time church. Now, you might be saying, now, this is really weird. I just, this idea of prophecy, now you've just gone too far. Two, two, two. We got some psychic in the church. This is too, too weird. Is it? Or is it the way God has worked all along? Is this really brand new? Is this really out of the blue? Do I really have to sit down because this is just too overwhelming? Look at this. In every major period of earth's history, God has raised up a prophet to prepare his people for what's impending. I like that about God. He doesn't just spring stuff on us. He lets his people know in advance what to expect when there's a major thing happening. Don't believe me? Let's do this. When the flood was coming, whom did God raise up? Noah. Noah was a prophet. When God was going to raise up a chosen people, who was the father of Israel? Whom did God raise up? We call him Father Abraham. He was a prophet, right? When the exodus came, whom did God raise up? Do you remember? Moses. He was a prophet. When the monarchy came to Israel, whom did God raise up? Well, Samuel. He was a prophet. 
And so he's preparing God's people through these prophets before every major thing that's impending. When the exile came for the kingdom, whom did God raise up? Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, and the list goes on. Several. How about this? When the Messiah came the first time, whom did God raise up? John the Baptist. That's right. When the gospel was to go to the Gentiles and all the world, who did God raise up? Struck him blind to get his attention. Paul. That's right. Now, this question. When the Messiah is coming the second time, spoken of throughout Scripture, the climax in so many ways of what we read, would God leave it void? Would there be no gift of prophecy? I'll tell you, that's the part that'd be weird. That wouldn't follow what God has done all along. Well, the second coming isn't big enough. Really? Are you kidding me? So this idea that it's weird to me just doesn't, doesn't work. It just fits what God has always done. Amos 3, verse 7. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. How much does he do? Nothing. He wants us to know. He wants us to be prepared. Her name was Ellen G. White. She received more than 2,000 prophetic visions and dreams, ranging from just a few minutes of, in length up to four hours long. She wrote over 50 books and all kinds of manuscripts and articles, and those books have been compiled into more books, and they've been translated into all kinds of languages, uh, lectured to thousands on three continents. You know, one of the books that she wrote called Steps to Christ... I thought it was in 134 languages. I've been telling people that. I looked this week. Now it's in over 150 languages around the world. Steps to Christ. Beautiful book. Filled with scripture. Pointing people to Christ. I love that book. If I'm ever in a spiritual down place, I call it a spiritual funk, I go to that book, Steps to Christ, and I get bathed in scripture. I get bathed in promises, and it just takes me through. And by the time I get to the end, I say, praise the Lord. God is good. I just love that book. Uh, George James says this, this remarkable woman, though almost entirely self-educated, she only had a third grade education, she got hit by a stone, they thought she was going to die, she was weak and feeble really for the rest of her life. But God takes the weak, right, to admonish the wise and all the rest. So she was largely self-educated and has written and published more books in more languages which circulate to a greater extent than any other woman in history. By their fruits you will know them. If this was just some offshoot little thing, it would have died out a long time ago. Right? <clears throat> Seventh-day Adventists believe in the Bible and the Bible only as the source of every Bible doctrine. Let's just clarify that right now. We don't get our doctrines from Ellen White. We don't. You can point to any of the doctrines that we have, and we don't point to Ellen White, except for this idea that the end church will have the gift of prophecy. Well, we kind of have to point to her then. But as far as the Sabbath, as far as the state of the dead, as far as anything else, we don't get that from Ellen White. We get it from God's Word. Is that important? I think it is. Every teaching of the Adventist church comes directly out of the Bible. But then she points us back to God's Word, back to God's Word, back to God's Word, in remarkable ways. Uh, so biblical tests of a prophet, we're going to go through these. Prophetic accuracy. Uh, she had a lot to say about health. In her time, 
There was very little thought of what was healthy, that food had anything to do with how you felt. And so you could eat whatever you wanted, lots of sweets, lots of coffee, I mean, very little of anything fresh ever. Um, and people were really suffering for it. They were not getting all these beautiful fruits and vegetables and the raw stuff and everything we studied in the Daniel fast. They weren't getting that. And I, I think back often about how blessed we are to be able to go to Ingalls, to be able to go to this supermarket, that supermarket, and get fresh stuff year-round. You know how spoiled we are? So spoiled. But they didn't have those things. Um, this person here, Clive McKay at Cornell University, says this woman is 100 years ahead of her time in the area of diet and health and all those kinds of things. That's Cornell University. The Ministry of Healing, which she wrote, page 327, she says, tobacco is a slow, insidious, but most malignant poison. That was not what the scientific community was saying at the time. They were prescribing cigars and other things for people to smoke to help them feel better. Yet she knew. How did she know? Third grade education? Did they teach that in second grade? No. God gave that to her, didn't he? Why would God do that? Because his church leaders were dying from a terrible diet. Um, she talked about how in utero babies are impacted even in utero what the mother does the moods of the mother all those kinds of things I just want to go back in time to her time a little bit poor hygiene of the time average life expectancy at birth uh, was 32 years old in 1800 can you believe that I'm an old man shouldn't be here in 1800 by 1850, you could live on average to be 41. By 1950, and then by 1950, 67. So there's quite an improvement there. But you look at her time, uh, which is mostly, I'm pointing at the wrong screen, mostly right in here and in here. And especially what she knew in terms of her background, it was quite terrible. And today it's 79 um, on average. Why? Well, fruits and vegetables were largely, largely avoided. Uh, many believe that the deadly cholera epidemic was part of that, and so they avoided fruits and vegetables. Lack of refrigeration and unsanitary processing. They didn't really have this idea of the germ theory. hadn't even been around. Uh, most people seldom took baths, and some authorities claim the average American of the 1830s never took a bath during their entire life. It's kind of like those of you who've never washed your car its whole life. You just wait for it to rain, and you say, I washed my car today. Maybe if you sweat real hard, it'll help. <clears throat> Even as late as 1855, New York City had only 1,361 bathtubs for its 629,000 residents. Woo! I bet you could smell your way to New York City, boy. <clears throat> Sanitation. Sewage was dumped on the streets along with trash since there was not garbage collection system. It was not uncommon for dead animals to lie in the street for weeks. And so here we have a horse. Who knows how long it's been there? And kids are just playing. They're here in the gutter. Maybe things are seeping down into there. Who knows why people only live to be 32? Hospitals. Hospitals were really a place to go and die, by the way. It was a last resort. You didn't want to have to go to the hospital. If you did get sick, um, it tended to be a death sentence to go to the hospital. Uh, places where people went to die. They believed in bloodletting. We're just going to cut you open, let the blood flow out, get all those toxins out, right? Is that a good practice today? Do we do that? Giving them mercury and strychnine, which are extremely poisonous, but they thought that was great. In fact, some of our presidents died, our early presidents, to some of this practice. I think George Washington, am I correct? 
We have the historian here on the second row. Um, but in the age, it was thought that fever, vomiting, and diarrhea were signs of recovery. Who wants to recover? <laughs> Man. Surgery was done without anesthesia. So speed was of the essence. In the Civil War, if you were a good army surgeon, you could lop off a leg in 40 seconds. Just bite the stick. Hold him down. How many did it take for surgery? Well, call all 12 guys over. It'll only take less than a minute. We'll be done. Wow. And you thought you lived in a rough time in Earth's history. Surgery. Since surgeons had no knowledge of germs or how infections spread, they did not feel it necessary to change aprons or knives or even wash their hands between surgeries. So I dig into this person over here. I take these tools. I wipe them on my apron. And I go dig in this person here. And everybody's dying of infection. How is this happening? Well, you don't know. And the first person that suggests this idea of germs laughed. They laugh at him, right? And so she's speaking to a time. How did Ellen White know the difference between the health fads of the day and sound science? You tell me. How did she know? I would say God was talking to her and giving her these things way ahead of her time. So prophetic accuracy. I think we can claim that one. Uh, she predicted a huge rise in the occult, spiritualism, psychic phenomena, astrology, communication with the dead, which has always been, but it was so small back then. It's almost like, why are you talking about this? Is it small today? I mean, you flip on primetime and it's everywhere, right? <clears throat> have mercy. This little book, The Great Controversy, anybody that doesn't have a copy of this book, if I have any deacons listening, go find some of our boxes of The Great Controversy. Anybody that doesn't have this book, you're going to get a complimentary copy today on your way out. This is the cover that we have on the one we're giving you, but it has come and been reprinted in multiple covers and different things. She says this in that book, one of many things she says in that book, fascinating book, people alone have taken the great controversy, you're reading ahead of me, and read that book, and that book alone has said, you know what, I've got to get back to church. In fact, I have to find a Sabbath-keeping church because of so many things that she wrote over 100 years ago that are coming to pass, and people say, oh, well, the gift of prophecy is outdated. Friends, if you've read The Great Controversy recently, you know that every year that goes by, this book gets more and more relevant, not less. Amen. More and more relevant. This is what she wrote over 100 years ago. The Roman church now presents a fair front to the world, covering with apologies her record of horrible cruelties. Written 100 years ago, fulfilled last year, June 22, Pope apologizes to the Waldensian church for the persecution and the atrocities that it did. I find that quite interesting. <clears throat> so that's just another example. Biblical faithfulness. Let's look at that. In the Great Controversy, page 204, she writes, In our time there is a wide departure from their doctrine and precepts, and there is need of a return to the great Protestant principle, the Bible and the Bible only, as the rule of faith and practice. Can you say amen? amen? She points people back to the Bible repeatedly, over and over and over. Now, a false prophet would draw people away. She's pointing back. <clears throat> Exalts Jesus. Uh, in this work, Gospel Workers, she says, lift up Jesus. You that teach the people, lift him up in sermon, in song, in prayer. What does Scripture say? If I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. Let all your powers be directed to pointing souls, uh, confused, bewildered, lost, to the Lamb of God. Now again, I had to pause here. The only way you're going to be able to discover for yourself she's a prophet, you're going to have to read her for yourself. I've talked to a lot of people that like to throw her out. 
and I say, how much of her have you read? Blah, 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 blah. Not much. They've read other people's excerpts. But if you take the steps of Christ, if you read Desire of Ages on the Life of Christ, if you read the Great Controversy, some of these masterful works, you will be convinced very quickly on your own that she is gifted and comes from God. Here's some of the other books we're going right now in our prayer meeting. We're going through this Christ Objects Lessons. Powerful book. As she, as she points us back to all of these parables and object lessons that Jesus himself taught. And we, we look, and sometimes I'll find there in, in one of Ellen White's books, I'll say, wait, where does Scripture say that? And then I go back, and it's right there. It's been there the whole time, but I missed it. And she points me back to it. Beautiful. Um, this book right here, Desire of Ages on the Life of Christ. Uh, this is the Library of Congress. It has more books than any other. One question, my preference of choice would be guided. They said, what's the best book on the life of Christ? I mean, how many thousands of books do they probably have on the life of Christ? And this person says... Uh, my preference or choice would be guided by what I wish to get from the book or books to be read, but let me put it this way. I would put The Desire of Ages by Ellen G. White first for spiritual discernment and practical application. Isn't that interesting? I've also heard it's the most checked out of all books on the life of Christ, the Library of Congress. Number four, commandment keeping. Is she trying to follow, get us to follow some other form of commandments or anything else? Um, not at all. She's continually pointing us back to the Ten Commandments, and there's so many examples of that, I haven't included one. But she herself is the biggest proponent of everything I'm talking about. Back to the Bible, back to the Ten Commandments, back to the Sabbath truth. Um, and so we have that there. And then physical tests. We have physical tests. This Dr. Uh, Drummond was a skeptic. He didn't believe she was a prophet. That's fine. I wouldn't believe you if you told me you were a prophet right off the bat either, Right? So he wanted to put her through the test, and he knew about this physical phenomenon, and the Lord sent and gave her a, a, a vision in this doctor's presence, and he was able to inspect her for a, a considerable period of time, and at the end of it, he was convinced this woman is a prophet. Eyes open, pointing to the Bible, you know, turning pages, all kinds of things uh, that only could be of some supernatural force, and I think by the fruit, I would say it's not the devil. It really can be a little bit of both. Some people, oh, I just don't know. It's not going to be a little bit. It's either of the devil or it's of God. One of the two. And we have to decipher which it is. Spiritual fruitage. This little book, Education. Some uh, universities use this as a textbook, by the way. Um, she is instrumental in setting up the largest Protestant educational system in the world, the Seventh-day Adventist educational system. And we have schools all around the country, even right here in our backyard. Uh, Fletcher Academy is one example. We have Captain Gilmer Christian School. We have Mills River. We have Upward Elementary Schools. We go up the road a little bit further. We have Pisgah Academy. Um, go over to the Chattanooga area. You have Southern Adventist University. And the list goes on and on. Over 1.1 million students attend over 5,600 schools, colleges, and universities in nearly 145 countries of the world. That was in 2007. I promise you it's much more than that today. <clears throat> Not to mention the health work that she was into... In instrumental in promoting <clears throat> uh, this magazine here. I have a copy if you want to look through it. It says The Secrets of Living Longer. This was published back in November of 2005 and it had to do with the Blue Zones. Anybody heard of Blue Zones? Where this individual that works for National Geographic traveled to all these various places and wanted to know why do people live longer in these Blue Zones? And so National Geographic says this, Loma Linda is home 
This is uh, where this hospital was. In fact, this is one of the, the fanciest, nicest hospitals um, and most prestigious hospitals in the country, right here, Loma Linda University Medical Center. Very well known. Um, <clears throat> so why Loma Linda? Let's read. Loma Linda is home to a concentration of Seventh-day Adventists with a remarkable distinction. Study results have shown that as a group, they currently lead the United States in longest life expectancy. Isn't that pretty cool? You want to live longer? Be a Seventh-day Adventist. The Sabbath is a time taken to focus on family, God, camaraderie, and nature. Adventists claim this relieves stress, strengthens social networks, and provides consistent exercise. The Sabbath. Being Seventh-day Adventist, following our health message. Um, and we live, what do they say, 9 to 10, 8 to 10 years longer, something like that, on average. When she turned 100, this is one example in, the, in this article, Margie Jetton renewed her driver's license for another five years. But what truly keeps her going, she says, is her Christian faith. And so here you have a picture of Margie filling up her gas tank at 100 years old, just renewed for another five years, and there she's doing her exercises at 100. Some of you are looking at that picture saying, if I did that, I'd be sore. She's doing that at 100 years old. And so that led to, I mean, this guy kept talking about the Blue Zones, and he got on the Oprah Winfrey show. He did a Ted Med talk. Uh, he said this in his talk. You can get it on YouTube. People who are part of a faith group and actually show up four times a month live from four to 14 years longer. He says it. I find that interesting. Over 13 million outpatient visit the 785 hospitals, clinics, nursing homes, dispensaries, children's facilities, airplane and medical launches operated by the Seventh-day Adventist Church each year. We also have Florida Hospital, a little bit more in our backyard, and that's a big uh, thing. Here's another magazine that I have, U.S. News and World Report. You can look through this one, too. It has an article, 11 Health Habits that will help you live to 100. Anybody here want to live to 100? And here's the list. Don't retire, floss every day, move around, eat fiber. Look at here, number eight. If you were a little kid and you were doing which of these don't match, you'd pick number eight. Everything here makes sense, but what? live like a Seventh-day Adventist? What is that? I know where to get floss. Where do I get a Seventh-day Adventist? Do I plug it in? This is what it says. Americans who define themselves as Seventh-day Adventists have an average life expectancy of 89. They didn't get the Seventh-day Adventist part right, but that's okay. About a decade longer than the average American. One of the basic tenets of their religion is that it's important to cherish the body that's on loan from God, which means no smoking, alcohol abuse, or overindulging in sweets. Followers typically stick to a vegetarian diet based on fruits, vegetables, beans, and nuts and get plenty of exercise. They're also very focused on family and community. Secular magazine. You want to live to a healthy 100? Live like a Seventh-day Adventist. Is that fruit? I would call that fruit. And vegetables and beans and nuts and all the other stuff. <laughs> Here's another magazine. This is in the spring of last year. This is the Smithsonian Collector's Edition. And if you look here closely on the magazine, this picture is one of these pictures made up of all these tiny pictures. And if you can read it there, it says, 100 most significant Americans of all time. And I pull this off. I'm not sure if you're going to be able to read it. We have Christopher Columbus. We have Neil Armstrong, Susan B. Anthony, Abraham Lincoln, uh, Franklin Theodore Roosevelt, Helen Keller, all these big names. Sojourner Truth, Oprah Winfrey, you know, John uh, Audubon. We get all kinds of books. Ansel Adams. 
Then we have Billy Graham, Mark Twain. Oh, but what's who? What? what? Who's this? Ellen White? The 100 most significant Americans of all time? Two-page spread. Is that fruit? I think it's fruit. Let's keep going. We got lunch. George Barna, he's this huge statistician. You may not have heard of him, but if you're into church statistics of any kind, any denomination around North America, George Barna's your man. He'll do all kinds of tests, constantly, constantly, constantly. How come our youth have left the church? How come this has happened? How come that's happened? What age group in this category and all the rest? He did a study that blew my socks off. He asked most influential authors of pastors under 40 of all denominations. He says, of all the pastors under 40, what authors are you reading the most that influence you the most that you say, if I had to get rid of my library, I wouldn't get rid of these? And these were the top. Business consultant James Collins, seminary professor Thorne Rayner, uh, 19th century Seventh-day Adventist icon Ellen White, and Pastor John Orberg. So in a time when you have people saying, well, I don't know about Ellen White, even sometimes in the Seventh-day Adventist church, sadly to say, you have Baptist ministers, Methodist ministers, Pentecostal ministers, all these people having breakfast together saying, yeah, what books are you reading? I'm reading Desire of Ages. Who wrote that? Ellen White. It's phenomenal. I've gotten so much sermon material and it's brought me closer to the Lord. You really need to read her. And so word is spreading among pastors under the age of 40 that she is something to really pay attention to. But sometimes, oh, you know, Ellen White. Do you believe in her? No, we just believe in the Bible. What are we doing? What are we doing? God gave, her the, God gave us this incredible gift in Ellen White, and she has helped us in so many ways and pointed us back to Scripture. That's what I love about her. She points us back to Scripture. Uh, she was instrumental in, in saying, we've got to send mis- missionaries out. That's Jay and Andrews, first missionary to Switzerland, by the way. Had huge portions of the Scripture memorized. Seventh-day Adventists have established, and I just got this. This is from 2014, I guess, so it's a tiny bit old. Established work in 216 of the 237 countries of the world listed by the United Nations. Take very seriously this idea of go into all the world, right? Here's a quote from Review and Herald that she wrote, The Lord has given a lesser light to lead men and women to the greater light. Ellen White is that lesser light. She's never trying to take the focus off of Jesus, but trying to constantly reflect it back to Christ. Give it back to Christ, who is the greater light. This is another interesting survey. I know you're ready to go, but I just, I told you I'd get excited. If you have to leave, you can go ahead and leave. That won't bother me, but you need to hear this. North American Division Church Growth Survey by Roger Dudley and Des Cummings. They did that in the North American Division. This is an Adventist survey. They surveyed 8,200 members of the Seventh Adventist Church of 193 different churches across North America with 20 different measures of spiritual life and one pivotal question, but the people taking the test didn't know what the pivotal question was. It was just one of the questions. And the pivotal question was, do you read Ellen White's writings, yes or no? And then they wanted to see how they answered that question and how that would affect the rest of the survey. Are you with me? Is there a correlation if you read Ellen White's writings or if you don't in your spiritual life? So here are some of the questions. Those that describe their relationship with Jesus as intimate. Do you want your relationship with Jesus to be intimate? I do. Those that read Ellen White said 82% of them said they are intimate with Jesus Christ. In contrast to only 56% of the non-readers. I find that interesting. 
That's a 26% difference. Here's another question on the survey. A high degree of assurance that they were right with God. I want to be, feel right with God, don't you? Those that read Ellen White, 82% of the readers said, I feel right with God, versus only 59% of the non-readers. I mean, this isn't 3 or 4% difference. This is a 23% difference. Here's another one. Involved in Christian outreach and service to the community. It says the readers of Ellen White, 73% of readers of Ellen White are involved in the community versus only 49% of the non-readers. Do we see a trend? And then some people say, well, you know what? Everybody I know that reads Ellen White, they're just a bunch of fuddy-duds, and they always have these long faces like this, and they always are saying, well, this and this, and this, Sister White says this, Sister White says that, and beats everybody over the head with her, and I'm just, I'm fed up, I'm done with her. I want to read the Bible and the Bible only. Well, this is the one that knocked my socks off. Have daily personal Bible study. That's what it's about, right? And they always say, all they ever do is read Ellen White, and they never read their Bible. That person might exist, but is that person... Everybody? According to this survey, 82% of the readers of Ellen White also read their Bible on a daily basis versus only 47% of the non-readers. That, to me, speaks volumes of the fact that she is a true prophet because she's pointing people back to Scripture. A false prophet would say, would pull people away and say, I have something new. Follow me. Let me show you the way you really need to be going. But a true prophet says, no, you need to get back into the Word. And that's what she's doing. And that's what bears out right here. 35% difference. This was their conclusion. Seldom does a research study find the evidence so heavily weighted toward one conclusion. In the church growth survey on every single item that deals with spiritual life, the member who regularly studies Ellen White's books tends to rank higher than does the members who read them only occasionally or never. Wow! Is this a gift that God's given to his church? This is a precious gift to uphold the Bible, to bring us back to Jesus in a closer way. And if we discredit the gift, we're doing ourselves a huge disservice. Now, I have to tell you, if I was the devil, I would want to cover up this gift with everything I had. I would. If I were the devil, I would, I would make fun of it. I'd downplay it with a snicker, with a joke. I'd find the most obscure little passages and I'd run them together to make her say things she never said. I wouldn't worry about the principle of what she's saying, but I would take the, the you know, she says, well, you shouldn't purchase a bicycle. Well, bicycle was so expensive back then. What's the principle? It's a stewardship principle that's timeless, has nothing to do with a bicycle today. I mean, it could, I suppose. But, but if I was the devil, I would attack it with every way that I could, especially that little book I wish I had when The Great Controversy because it exposes completely his whole game plan. Amen. I don't want my game plan exposed. I want it to be top secret. I want to come with the element of surprise. If I was the devil, I would stone the prophet with everything that I had. Wouldn't it make sense? I would raise up every diabolical website possible to discredit the prophet. Friends, if she was a false prophet, I don't think she'd be attacked, near like she's attacked. I don't think so. But if she's a true prophet, would the devil set his sights on a true prophet? Would he raise up all kinds of people that are bitter against the prophet? Would he have people dedicate their entire life to pulling down the prophet? I believe so. That's what I would do if I were the devil. 2 Chronicles 20.20. 20. It's lunchtime. You guys need to let me go. 
Believe in the Lord your God and you shall be established. Believe his prophets and you shall, what's the word? Prosper. I want to prosper. You want to prosper. And here's the recipe. Believe in the Lord your God and you shall be established. Believe his prophets. It's still really his word. And you will prosper. And so I invite you, if you have not, if this is all brand new to you, or if you've stepped away from it before, I invite you to pick up a Steps to Christ. That's where I'd start. I'd pick up a Steps to Christ and I'd read it. And I'd say, Lord, if this is from you, reveal yourself to me through this little book. And I would read it. If you haven't read it for a year or more, pick it up and read it again. If you're in a spiritual funk, pick it up and read it again and again and again. Go to Desire of Ages. Go to the great controversy if you're, if you're liking prophecy and some of the things we've been presented. It's all outlined there better than I can say it. And it exposes the devil and his plan and it prepares God's church, God's people for end time. So it's like, it's like cornflakes. Taste them again for the first time maybe. I don't know. But we can do ourselves a huge disservice to throw the prophet out. It's a precious gift that God has given to his church. And I would urge you, I would implore you with everything that I have. My favorite way to study, Bible's open and one of Ellen White's books is open and oftentimes there's an index in the back and she'll go through in Desire of Ages and she'll tell you the passages and so I read the passage, I read what she says, I go back to the passage and I think, wow, God, you're incredible. Do that. Don't take my word for it. What do I know? I haven't even gone through puberty yet. Read it yourself. (laughs) Read it yourself. All right, we need to be done. But I believe that God is calling a special group of people to be obedient to God's word, that follow all ten of his commandments, and have this precious gift of the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus, as Revelation says, is the gift of prophecy. And I am a Seventh-day Adventist today because I believe what the Bible says. I believe what the Bible says, and I believe in the spirit of prophecy. And if you want to get to know Jesus, read Steps to Christ. That book will be a self-fulfilling prophecy in your life if you do. I'm going to go ahead and skip our hymn today because we're short on time. But will you pray with me before we go? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you have done in our time what you have done all along. Time and time and time again. Before every major thing that was impending on your people that affected your chosen people, your faithful people, you sent a prophet to prepare your people. And Lord, it's no different today. You have sent the prophet Ellen White, and she has written so much. Lord, help us not to ignore her. Help us not to cast her aside. Help us to read her and decide for ourselves. And may your Holy Spirit convict us, if this truly is from you, that it will lead us back to your word in a deeper way, lead us back to you in a deeper way, that we can follow you and follow the Lamb wherever you go, and that when you come and all the things surrounding your coming, we as your people will be prepared because you have shown it to us. In your name we pray, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.